This is a re-recording of the sermon from City on a Hill, the fourth in a series titled Neither Poverty Nor Riches. This sermon is on content partnership from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I'm just going to read that passage now before we have our sermon. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned this learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yes, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That'd be great if you kept Ephesians chapter 4 open. Have you ever heard of Humphrey Monmouth? Does that name ring a bell? My guess is no. But I'm sure you've heard of Monmouth's good mate, William Tyndale. William Tyndale, the Protestant reformer, the Bible translator, one of the fathers of the English language, said to be more influential than Shakespeare himself. But I want you to realize something. The Bible you have in your hands in English, we're told that it exists because of William Tyndale. He was the one to take the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and translate them into English, He was the one who worked hard to have the Bibles distributed at great risk and great expense. He was able to do this despite two massive obstacles. The first obstacle, it was illegal. Not kind of like jaywalking illegal, but torture and execution by being burnt at the stake illegal. And second, it was expensive. William Tyndale couldn't afford to do the work to print the Bibles and have them distributed around the country. And here's where our mate, Humphrey Monmouth comes in. Monmouth was a wealthy trader in cloth, an alderman in the city of London. He met a young Tyndale and caught his vision to translate the Bible into the language of the people. He imagined a world where people could read the Bible so that even the boy who drove the plough in the field would be able to know God as well as the Pope in Rome. And so Monmouth was captivated by this vision and he took the young Tyndale under his wing. He gave Tyndale food, board, 
space, and most importantly, secrecy for him to complete the work. He took great risks so that Tyndale could complete his translation of the Bible. Eventually, Tyndale had to leave England for Europe, and the first English Bibles were printed on the continent and then smuggled back across the channel. And they were transported in the crates of cloth that Monmouth was trading. Humphrey Monmouth was Tyndale's patron, his sponsor, his kickstarter in the 21st century lingo. Without Humphrey Monmouth, we wouldn't have heard of William Tyndale. And we may never have, humanly speaking, we may never have had the Bible in our own language. Now that's a great story, and I like stories, but what's the point? Well, the point is this. Behind almost all the great advances of the kingdom of God, every great movement of the gospel, every great act of salvation where people have moved from death to life, behind it all are regular, ordinary, normal, run-of-the-mill Christians. Sure, there are the Tyndales, the Luthers, the Calvins, the Wesleys, the Whitfields, the Spurgeons, the Kellers, the Pipers, the Schumachs, all the ones we've heard about, the ones who get the attention and the accolades. But behind them all are ordinary Christians who do extraordinary things to make it happen. In a lot of ways, these people are just, they're very ordinary, living normal lives just like you, doing the daily grind, nine to five, struggling just like anyone else. But in the midst of all of that, they've caught a glimpse, a vision. They see the kingdom of heaven clearly. They've set their heart on it, as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. They seek it as their treasure. And their clarity of vision on the kingdom of heaven is so clear, it leads to two important features in their life. The first feature is that they partner in the gospel. They partner in the gospel. They use what God has given them, their time, their money, their possessions, their effort. They use it all to glorify God. And they do it by supporting the work of proclaiming and sharing the good news about Jesus. And the second feature of these people is this, that they are content. They're not constantly grasping for more. They trust in God to provide and they're content with what they have and with who they are in Jesus. And we see both these things, partnership and contentment, right here in Philippians chapter 4. Now, this is our last in the uh, series of talks where we've been trying to work out how to glorify God with our money and our possessions. And so far, we've been laying the foundations. We've seen from Genesis chapter 1 that God made everything, He made it good, and He owns everything, even our money and our possessions. And we've seen uh, from Matthew chapter 6 that money and possessions are not a God to be worshipped, nor are they the goal for which we should strive, but we should focus on the kingdom of heaven. That ought to be our goal. And last week, we saw that generosity is motivated by, by grace, not guilt. By recognizing that Though Christ was rich, he became poor, so that despite our poverty, we might become rich. Generosity is driven by the grace shown to us in Jesus. And this week, we're going to round it all off by looking at Philippians chapter 4, where we see that Jesus offers us true contentment from which we can generously partner in the gospel. Jesus offers us true contentment from which we can generously partner in the gospel. Now, the book of Philippians is one of the more positive books in the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul to a relatively small and poor church in Macedonia. And if you remember from last week, Macedonia was more kind of the Hamilton rather than the Wellington. If you catch my drift, it wasn't known for its wealth or its culture or its sophistication. But despite that, the Philippians, these Macedonian Christians, they show extraordinary generosity. And so I think they deserve a closer look. And as Paul writes this letter to them, the, to the letter to the Philippians, 
we see at the end of the letter these two pictures, a picture of partnership and a picture of contentment. We see a picture of joyful partnership in the gospel. Joyful partnership in the gospel. Take a look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, their concern for Paul is their support, their care of him. He's not just rejoicing because they were thinking some nice thoughts about Paul or sent him a card for his birthday. No, it's not the kind of, it's the thought that counts type of concern here. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He's thanking them because they are supporting him as a missionary out proclaiming the gospel. He's rejoicing because they have helped keep him on the road so the good news of Jesus can continue to spread, so people can come to faith in Christ and move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's been the Philippians' concern, making sure Paul has what he needs to keep preaching about Jesus. Now, I learned recently that the National Anthem of Greece, it has 158 verses. Now, that seems like a lot. If you want to hear it, you can find it on YouTube. The video goes for 58 minutes. Now, that's completely useless information. I don't know how that helps anyone. But I learned something else recently which isn't useless. It's slightly more profound. Have you ever wondered how, who, how Jesus paid the bills? Or who paid Jesus' bills? As Jesus traveled around preaching, how did he, how did he make his ends meet? His disciples, they left their nets to follow him. So who picked up the tab? Well, Jesus didn't always get the coin out of the mouth of a fish and he didn't have a, a winery business where they took water and unsold it as wine and he didn't have a fish sandwich shop where he took kind of the minimal ingredients and used it to feed thousands of people. So how did Jesus pay the bills? Well, Luke 8 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were supported by a small group of women. It's worth looking up if you've got a Bible there. Turn to Luke chapter 8 verse 1. Luke chapter 8 verse 1, it says this, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had cured evil spirits, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. And here it is. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. You see, Jesus' mission, it was funded in a very earthly way. Women, a few of them who were wealthy, were footing the bill. They were keeping the show on the road, providing Jesus and his disciples with what they needed to continue to proclaim the kingdom of God. And the same thing is happening with Paul and the Philippians. They are keeping him afloat so the gospel can continue to go out. And the same happens today. When we support someone doing the work of the gospel, we are partnering with them. And it's not like paying a bill and kind of giving to church isn't kind of a fee for services rendered. Giving to the work of the gospel is more like a joint venture, a partnership. When we give so that someone else is freed up to tell people about Jesus, it's as though we are right there with them. We're in it together. And this is just an, isn't a just kind of cute idea to make us feel better or feel more connected or to even make us give more. 
This is a theological reality Paul is showing us. And it's worth pausing here to drill down on this a little bit more because it actually raises some really important issues for us. It's particularly important for churches today. And there's a question that kind of floats around churches and floats around this idea of how much should a pastor or a missionary or a gospel worker be paid? I remember quite clearly a conversation I had with one of my cousins when I told her that I was going to Bible college to study to become a pastor. My cousin, who isn't a Christian, said, That's great. From what I've seen, you can make a lot of money being a pastor. Now, I think what she had seen was the Christian channel on TV full of smiling televangelists with their gold watches and private jets. And these guys, they usually work for churches that think that the labor market for pastors is like that for CEOs. So you get what you pay for. And if you want a really good one, then you pay top dollar. And so in some churches, the pastor might find that they're the highest paid person in the church. But on the flip side, there are other people who believe the pastor ought to be poor. I've heard that in some cultures, when the church has a meal, the pastor and his family get to eat first, not out of respect, but because of the expectation that they should be the most hungry. But what does the Bible say? Well, I think Paul's take on it is that some ought to be freed up to work as ministers of the gospel. They're to be freed up from working a regular job, freed up from having to put a roof over their head and food on their table so they can devote their time and their energy into praying and preaching, to equipping the church for mission, to see that believers are matured in their faith, to see the church caring for and nurturing those in need. Paul writes to Timothy about this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says this in verses 17 and 18. To the elders who direct the affairs of the church well... Uh, So the elders who direct the the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. For those who have been set aside from regular work to preach and to teach and to direct the affairs of the church, Paul is saying really clearly that they are to be provided for, so they can be freed up, so they can focus on this work. This payment is often in churches referred to as a stipend. A stipend is a living wage being provided with enough to neither be in poverty nor riches. Now, I should say here that I, or any other pastors that I know really, we don't do this money, this job for the money. Uh, to be honest, if I wanted more money, there's a lot of other jobs I could do that would be easier and that would pay much more. But because a pastor doesn't do it for the money, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be paid for it. I mean, they've got kids that still need to eat. They still need somewhere to sleep. They, they still need to care and provide for their family. The pastor, the missionary, the evangelist, they ought to be freed up so they can focus on this work of the gospel. Now, just to get even more detailed, and uh, you might be wondering how we as a church at Sino Hill have worked this out. Well, just to let you know, we, along with other FIC churches, we all get, all the pastors get paid based on a similar formula. It's worked out based on a percentage of the national average full-time wage uh, plus an allowance to help pay for accommodation. If you want to know the exact numbers, you can chat with me or someone on the admin team. But we want to be a church that's as, as transparent as possible with money. And to be honest with you, if you find yourself at a church where they don't publish the accounts, where they don't tell you what the past has paid, where they don't tell you where the money goes, you have to ask the question, Is this a place where the love of money is beginning to overtake a love for God? You see, as churches, we not only need to be doing the right thing when it comes to handling money, but we need to be seen to do the right thing as well. 
You might remember from last week in 2 Corinthians that Paul goes to considerable lengths to make sure that he's accountable with the money that he's going to deliver to the struggling Christians in Judea. He keeps talking about there being oversight, that reliable and responsible and trustworthy people are to make sure that it's handled wisely. Churches need to not just do the right thing, but be seen to do the right thing. But what does this have to do with partnership? Well, heaps. Gospel partnership is to be based on trust. When we support the preaching of the gospel, we're partners in that work. It's a a deep and rich partnership. And it can only exist when we trust them, when we know what they're doing, when we know how the resources are being used to advance the kingdom of God, when we know what's going on so we can be praying for the work. And that's the sort of partnership that brings about great joy. Five years back, this church, Cedar Hill, it started in our living room with a handful of people. And there might have only been a few people on the ground, uh, but there were and there still are hundreds of people who regularly pray for us. Seven churches took Cedar Hill as a mission partner. And there are people who wanted to come and be part of the church plant in Wellington, uh, but they, they couldn't and they didn't. And what they did was they partnered with us and they continue to partner with us. And they've continued their regular jobs in Auckland or Christchurch or Sydney or Brisbane. And they work hard and they give and they pray as they long to see the gospel go out in Wellington. And I talk with them regularly, a whole number of them. I catch up with them pretty regularly. And they're rejoicing at what God has done in his church. So as you come each week, as you wonder whether you might fit in here, or as you try and work out what your commitment to this whole thing might be, Paul thinks that we should be in gospel partnership. In gospel partnership. Uh, It's not fee for religious services rendered. You pay money and someone provides a, a service for you to attend on Sunday. It's not like that. But people who are captivated by the Savior Jesus. People who long to see his kingdom spread. People who will partner with others here at City on Hill and beyond to see the kingdom of God spread throughout the world. But how do we get there? How do we get to this way of thinking that Paul is talking about? How can we be followers of Jesus who desire his kingdom such that we're able to have this kind of deep, joyful partnership in the gospel? Well, for Paul, it's a secret. It's a secret. Come back to Philippians and take a look with me at chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Chapter 4, verse 11 I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, just to begin, Paul, he starts by assuring them that he's not kind of buttering up buttering them up. He's not he's not preparing them so that he can ask them for something later. He's rejoicing in their partnership. It's not kind of the groundwork for another request. Why? Well, because of verse 12. Verse 12, he's learned the secret of being content. When there's money in the in his wallet or when there's no money in his wallet, when there's food in his belly or when he's hungry, Paul is content. And it's more than just money and more than just food. He says he's learned to be content, verse 11, whatever the circumstances. And verse 12, in every and any situation. And just in case you think Paul is having us on here, that this is kind of all just kind of words, uh, and that he's kind of really just doing it fine, and he's just talking in the abstract, 
Do you know where Paul is when he's writing this letter? Well, Paul, currently, as he writes this letter to the Philippians, he's in prison. Most likely in Rome. Paul is in chains. And yet he can say, I am content. Now, that's powerful. Now, what do you think it would take for you to be able to say that with Paul? To be able to say, I am content. I mean, we expect that sort of thing to come from someone who's kind of made it in life. Maybe who's someone who's retired at 40, traveling the world, taking it easy. But think of Tiger Woods. A few years back, we saw he was not content. Now, he, on the outside, he was a man with everything. He was at the top of his game. He had made over a billion dollars playing golf. He was married to a beautiful woman. But somehow, with his plenty, with his more than plenty, it just wasn't enough. He wasn't content, and his whole world came crashing down. And this is what Tiger said. He said this, I felt, like, I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was wrong. I was foolish. You see, even with all the wealth and the power in the world, he was still discontent. He still wanted more. He was still tempted by that next thing. But what about you? Maybe you're not as greedy as Tiger Woods, but what would it take for you to be content? Maybe the mortgage paid off. Maybe the kid's just sleeping through the night. Maybe good marks in your exams that are coming up. Maybe the relationship or the family of your dreams. Maybe it would just be good health. Well, Paul says that regardless of any of that, he is content. He can be hungry and content. He can be lonely and in jail and content. He can have everything he needs and still be content. And so how can he say that? Well, Paul, he says he knows the secret. Verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You see, the secret to being content is to know God. To know the God who will give you the strength to get through whatever you've got in front of you. To know the God who has done everything to bring you back to him. And when you know this God, when you know that he is the one who, verse 19, will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. When you know this God, when you trust this God, when you hand your life and your worries and your concerns and your stresses over to him, then you have learnt the secret of being content. Now, I know that at, in our church at the moment, there are lots of people who are really struggling and genuinely struggling. And they're struggling in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, relationships, finances, job security, mental health, shattered dreams, overworked, wrung out, burnt out from the disappointments of life, homesickness, the works. It's all going on. But I think what Paul is saying here has something to, something for all of us. Particularly those who are finding things difficult. Contentment in hard times is found through drawing near to God. Contentment is found through drawing near to God, not pulling away from Him. What did Paul say? From prison? God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. 
Now, I know that when things aren't going well, I know the temptation is to, to batten down the hatches, to go into your shell, to keep the circle small, to pull back. But Paul is saying, draw near to God when you're in the darkness. Draw near to God. He is the one who created the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He is the one who not only created everything, but by but he sustains everything by his powerful word. He is the one who gave his only son, Jesus, to die for you. So, of course, you can trust him with your life. Of course, you can trust him with your money. Of course, you can trust him in any and every circumstance. Drawing near to God, that is the secret of being content. Knowing him, knowing God and putting your trust in him. So we've seen two pictures in this passage, a picture of joyful partnership in the gospel and a picture of contentment, of of joyful trust in the God who will provide. So where does this leave us? How do we glorify God with our money and our possessions? Well, do you remember Humphrey Monmouth, the wealthy cloth trader who helped a young Tyndale translate the Bible into English? I think he was a man who worked out how to glorify God with his money and possessions. He knew everything he had, it was given to him by God. And he was single focused on God's kingdom. He was willing to risk it all. He even went to jail for two years, yet he was willing to risk it all so that he might have treasure in heaven. And he was motivated not by guilt, but by grace. And he desired others might come to know Christ. So they might, they might come to know that Christ became poor so that they might become rich. And he was content. Not wanting or grasping for more, but content, willing to trust and trust it all to God while he went about the work of partnering in the gospel, partnering with Tyndale so that millions and billions of people might be able to know Jesus. You see, he was a man who glorified God with his wealth, with his money and his possessions. And we get, when we get to be with Jesus in the new creation, when we look around and see who's there, some will recognize, some will be the famous ones who went out preaching and teaching. But most of the folks are going to, be around, most of the folks are going to go around and say, Humphrey, who? What could he have done? We've never heard of him. But God will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. May it be so of us as well, as we glorify God with our money and our possessions, as we glorify God with our whole life in joyful partnership for the gospel.